0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another Monday morning live devotional. Fall is fully underway here in Missoula. It is cold. It is rainy. It is Monday. My allergies are acting up. It's a perfect storm to be here with you guys this morning. So we've been working through the F260 Bible reading plan. We We are finishing the book of 1 Corinthians today as we're following Paul's missionary journeys throughout Asia. And uh, we're going to dive into this today looking, uh, we're going to do a recap and then we're going to look at our three places, look up, what does the text teach us about God, look in, what does this teach us about ourselves and look out, how does this change the way we live? Um, so kudos, just wanted to to uh, say thank you to all of you before we dive in who joined our first ever service in the old Missoula library yesterday. It was unique, it was, um, it was, it was, it was, delightfully weird. Um, we're so glad for everyone who helped to pitch in to get us moved there for our temporary location. If you haven't heard, um, we are temporarily at the library until early 2021 when we hope to have all of our um, issues at the Coke building that we purchased brought up to code so that we can meet there safely and legally. So that's underway right now. If you'd like to support those efforts, you can still do so at achurchbuilding.com. Um, But with that being said, let's dive into our recap of what we see in 1 Corinthians 15 through 16. And at this point, uh, there's been a lot of issues that we've seen in the book of 1 Corinthians in the Corinthian church. In specific, you've got um, unlawful sexual relationships happening. You've got um, uh, the rich people kind of taking the Lord's Supper and treating it as their own private buffet line to the uh, detriment of those who are more poor. It's kind of a church that's in a mess. And one thing that's really unique that gives us hope as sinners, um, and actually models, because Paul is really firm on discipline in this text, right? We talked about that. I think last week when we looked at, um, that it's the church's job to actually judge those who are in the church up into the point, even where we say, brother or sister, you are not, a bro- you are no longer a brother or sister. You are acting in a way unbecoming to the church of Jesus. And we're going to hand you over. Um, uh, we're going to excommunicate, we're going to hand you over to the devil with hopes um, that you might come back, that that judgment will be enough to spur you back. And so there's this weird tension in here of people who are a complete and total mess, um, but also people who are uh, still being called by Paul brothers. Paul is assuming Um, that the gospel is going to bear fruit. As much of a mess as this is, Paul is laying out the case for church discipline. He's laying out kind of the trajectory of what happens if this sin remains unrepentant and undealt with. And yet he assumes that the gospel will win the mac. that if they believe the gospel, they will endure. And that's actually the tone that Paul opens with in the conclusion of his letter when he says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and why, by which you are being saved. So Paul here is bringing this this encouragement and also this correction to the end of the letter. And that the point of correction that encompasses this encouragement is regarding the resurrection from the dead. And so we'll see as he continues here is uh, there are some people, whether it's in the church or in other churches in this area, um who are saying that Christ, that there is no resurrection from the dead, that Christ did not raise from the dead. You will not raise from the, de- the dead. This life is all there is. And here, Paul is leaning into that and he's correcting that. And so in most of uh, <clears throat> chapter 15, we see this in uh, verses three through 11, he presents the gospel with a unique emphasis on the resurrection from the dead. And then in uh, verses 12 through 34, uh, he begins to kind of lay what, what we lose. If we lose the doctrine of Christ's resurrection from the dead, we lose our own resurrection from the dead. And we're going to come back to that. And then he begins to answer questions. Um, uh, he, he talks about Jesus's victory, that Jesus is coming back. He is going to defeat death. He is going to finish God's redemptive work. He's going to hand the kingdom to God. In other words, he's, he's putting out this victory in Jesus. And then he de- deals with the nature of our resurrected bodies in the last in verses 35 and following in chapter 15. And then he goes into our victory that we will share with Jesus, this victory over death, where he says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of this, we're going to go back and and pick this part through. So I'm kind of uh, flying through chapter 15. But this emphasis on the centrality, um, the certainty, and the effect of Christ's resurrection from the dead applied to believers in light of their own resurrection from the dead. And then in chapter 16, um, he kind of just buttons up his letter. He talks about collecting. Um, You see this, uh, this missionary collection of the church in Corinth and also in, uh, Galatia. And they are giving to the believers in Jerusalem. And you see, uh, just kind of this stuff that might get Paul in trouble later in second Corinthians, where he's promising when he's going to come to the church and how they're going to encourage one another and the people who are there encouraging them right now. And then he concludes, uh, with giving them a, a benediction at the end. May the grace of Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So big picture we see in here is this idea of the resurrection from the dead. And so that's what our looking up and our looking in is going to center around. So when we look up, um, we see uh, a couple things here. And, and, and what's interesting is this is where Paul is wrapping up the whole of his letter. Um, there's all sorts of things that have gone on in this church. And he concludes it. With this idea of a Christian and their body. Uh, And that's really important because almost everything he's talking about in this text, whether it's um, the guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, people getting gluttonous uh, at the Lord's Supper, um, people living in licentious sin, um, all of these issues have to do with our bodies. And here he is presenting a doctrine of the resurrection from the dead in Christ Jesus. But what he's really presenting is a Christian doctrine of our bodies, how does God view our bodies? And that's a really important question because we live in them. We have them. God designed them. And what's interesting is if you look at church history, um, if there are sects that kind of come off of Christianity, little spin-off things, um, what generally happens is they fall into two errors when it comes to our view of body. One thing that I think is the more pervasive aspect is at some level, there tends to be some sort of devious, sinister grotesque gratification of the flesh. The body is elevated. It, it becomes gluttonous, hedonistic, and primarily in these cases, there's always some sort of uh, twisted, sensual, sexual pleasure um, that comes, and it, it shows up in all sorts of ways in church history. Um, and that's not the true church. Those are, again, heresies. Those are things that come off. Those, those are uh, kind of Gnostic religions. And you even see that with, with a lot of uh, secular um, thought. And you also see that with a lot of, uh, false religion too. So there's always some component. There's generally some component for those who fall on this side of elevating the body of, of, some gross sexual misconduct. But then the other side of this is kind of this stoic denial of the body. And so where one side says the body is King, let's elevate it. And this side says, well, God created us. Um, maybe you've heard this, uh, we are a soul and we have a body, um, kind of this thing that the body is just a receptacle for the soul. It doesn't really matter. And so there's kind of this what was an early heresy in the church um, that saw that what was physical is bad and what is spiritual is good. And so if we want to become enlightened, we deny and repress what is physical and we embrace what is spiritual. And there are portions of scripture which seem to indicate that. Um, but that's not what the Bible is saying. And we're going to circle back to that in a second. That's not all what First Corinthians is saying. Um and there's a guy I remember uh we read a book once um at church with a, a men's reading group that went through a bunch of Christian heresies, and there was one monk who uh believed in this kind of stoic separation of the body. And I believe he went and he just kind of exposed himself to the element standing on a pillar in the desert so that his body would suffer. And soon maggots started like eating his skin. Um and when a maggot would fall off he would <laughs> pick up the maggot and put it back on his skin. And he would say, eat what the Lord has given you. In other words, the earth was purging him from his physical desires. And that is not at all a healthy view of the body, nor is this gluttonous um, gratification of the body. And what's interesting is in first Corinthians, you have, uh, there's so many good things that Paul is doing in this text, uh, but there is this robust uh, theology of our body. Because it gets at what we'll see today, this your body is perishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is weak, it is wasting away. And yet, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that your body is a temple of God, that Christ dwells in you through the Holy Spirit, that your body matters distinctly. If you've been joined to God, you ought not join yourself to a prostitute. And so the body matters now, but we also see the body matters in the future. Here, when Paul brings in this resurrection from the dead, God cares about your body. Christians need to understand the way in which our body is given to us by God, designed by God, used by God to help us carry out God's mission for us in life in terms of both our work and our worship. And so we cannot, um, here at the end of this text, Paul is actually getting at this robust application by pressing us to have a biblical view of our bodies. God created us as body and soul. We are together part of what God has called us to be. We are not just a soul. We are not just a body. But God created us as this holistic unit, and we see this uh, expressed when we look up. Um, you know, God not only made us body and soul, but when God saves us through Jesus, we we hear this this idea of union with Christ. Um, that means a lot of things. Like we've been united with Christ, but there is a unique body uh, bodily union. That Paul is after here in this text that we ought not to forget. And listen to how closely Paul ties uh, our union in the flesh with Christ and the implications of it. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 13. Paul says this, I'll start in verse 12. But if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's uh, the apostles proclaim that he says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Look again, look ahead at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So there's this profound connection that we share bodily with Jesus. He's saying, if you're not resurrected from the dead, then Jesus won't be resurrected from the dead. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then you won't be resurrected from the dead. When we share bodily in being united to Christ, that is a real hope. You have hope because Christ has been raised. If Christ was not raised, you have no hope. And if we are not raised then Christ will not be raised. That's how unique this union is. It really matters. The historic facts of Christianity matter because of this union. Christ is real proof of our redemption. He is real proof of our resurrection. The facts of Christianity are not tools of apologetics. They are immense means of God's divine grace. It matters to us. When you look at an empty grave, it is not some abstract theological um, truth that Christ raised from the dead. It is a tangible hope that so too will you be raised. Why? Because you have been united in Christ in a way which is inextricable, indelible. Words that don't ask me to define those words, but I know they mean something concrete, something tangible. We have been united to Christ in faith, meaning that what Christ has won has been won to us. That is profound. We have a bodily hope in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man, that is Jesus, has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive we cannot miss what God is doing in this text. If if we forget that Christ, our brother, has invited us to share bodily in his life, then we're going to lose a lot of things that we're going to see in this text. We lose a lot of comfort. We lose a lot of hope because the truth is you are united to somebody. You are united in body either to Adam, which is destined to death, or united in body to Christ who has conquered death, who has defeated death, who has given us resurrected life and life eternal. And so when we see this text, what does it teach us about? God cares about our bodies and God's redemption is so strong. It is no mere spiritual redemption. It is a holistic redemption. God's gospel in Jesus, the good news of what Jesus has done to save sinners and restore us to God, undoes everything that sin has marred. It redeems, in Romans 8, our broken world will one day be made new. It redeems our spiritual separation by bringing God into our body so that our body becomes a temple. And one day it will redeem even our body itself. And how do you know that hope is for you? Because Christ has risen from the dead and you will share in that resurrection just like Christ did. Your body will be like Christ's body. He will be unique. He will be Jesus and you will not be Jesus. I will be me. You will be you. But our bodily resurrection will be of the same type. Jesus was the first fruit, meaning he was the the fruit that indicated the nature of the harvest, which would come, which is us when we are re- risen by God's power um, in Jesus. And and I love, I won't get there. Sorry, my Monday morning thoughts are un, unbridled at this moment, but I'll I'll stick to my notes here. So what do we see? We see a union with Christ. We see God's care for the body. And what, is this, what do we do with this when we begin to look in? Um, we look in and we see this massive impact that everything that we just talked about, everything that Paul has been laboring for in 1 Corinthians, is meant to change us. And it's meant to change us primarily in terms of how the doctrine of the resurrection and our understanding of our bodies gives us endurance. Right? Look back again at um, chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And so here you see these kind of three time markers, which you received, in which you stand. So received as past, stand as present, and by which you're being saved, future. This holistic salvation, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. Now what is it that he preached to them? Now listen here. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so what is his point here? Does our gospel confession have to include um, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture? He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And then these weird kind of five proofs of his um, uh, five appearances of the resurrected Christ. No, it doesn't need to include those things. Well, why why is Paul putting those things in there? Because he's including in his gospel profession, Christ died. Christ was raised in accordance with the scriptures, and then he gives proofs. Look at all these things. These people could not have seen Jesus unless he was raised. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, here's this gospel which will endure you, which will get you to the end if you hold fast to it. What is it you hold fast to? Not just that Christ died for your sins, but that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Do not, dear Christian, neglect the truth of Jesus's resurrection. For if you neglect it, you will lose the ability to endure. You will lose what it takes to hold fast to this gospel because what you lose when you lose the resurrection, you lose future hope in the gospel. You lose the final restoration to God in Jesus Christ, which will come at the end of all things so much. So look at what he says in verse 18. Um, he says of verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, so that's the nice way of saying they're died, have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so there's something profound here that we should think about. And that is, how would your life change functionally, practically, daily, um, if we had no resurrection from the dead? If there's no bodily resurrection, would your life be any different? Because Paul here says that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christians are of all people to be pitied. Because we miss out on everything that we're seeking for. We miss out on glory, we miss out on joy, we miss out on pleasure, we miss out on fulfillment. And the world is looking for all those things and physical things. And if Christians are denying themselves of those things and they don't get it, then we ought to be pitied. But Paul is saying because we have the resurrection from the dead, it changes everything we do in this life. We know that God will bring us satisfaction, vindication, and glory because he has done so to Jesus, our brother, with whom we have been united. And then he kind of gives um, two things which uh, we would lack if we deny the resurrection from the dead. It's one thing, I don't think many Christians today will say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, right? At Sovereign Hope, every couple of weeks, we recite the Apostles' Creed, and it includes this resurrection from the dead. We believe in the bodily resurrection. Um, but it's easy to actually live our lives as if that is not true. And we see two ways in which our lives should be practically different if we believe in the resurrection from the dead. We see this in verse 32, where he says um, this. So Paul says, what gain do I have, if humanly speaking... I fought with the beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised. And so here he's saying, he's, he's talking about this context of persecution. And he says, why would I be persecuted if I'm not going to be raised? Why would I face the beasts if my hope is in this life only? If we lose a resurrection from the dead, then Christian mission is crippled. Because there's nothing worth dying for. If, if our joy is in this life, then why would we risk our bacon for nothing? And I think this is a really challenging thing because how many of us actually already do that? How many of us actually already live as if the satisfaction of this world, our quality of life in this world and our peace in this world are actually of ultimate concern? And what would our lives look differently if we're actually able to, by by, the, by cherishing this doctrine of the resurrection trust, that we will not lack anything because of this wonderful promise of triumphing over death in Jesus Christ. That this 80 year life where maybe for two or three years, you might reach this peak, this peak, uh, you know, triumvirate of financial peace, health and well-being, and uh, like living where you want to live. There's a buck, like a four-point buck that just walked directly by my window. So sorry, I was distracted Um, on my driveway. That's weird. Um, So like you'll have this small sweet spot in this 80-year life that you might have, but in eternity, Christ has won you to something more. And so why would we shortchange that joy in eternity for this trivial um, momentary pleasure, as Paul says right now? And so having the resurrection hope gives us zeal to risk in this world in a way where we can gain uh, risk in this world in a way where we lose nothing in this world. And then secondly, um, he continues in verse 33. He says this, um, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. And so not only does um, a, a denial of the resurrection cause us to lack godly zeal and ambition in life, it also helped, or causes us to lack holiness. And here he's assuming that these uh, Corinthian believers are hanging out with uh, other people who deny the resurrection, and he says, bad company ruins good morals. And what he's saying is, is, is if you deny um, the resurrection from the dead, not only will you not choose to pursue... Uh, the eternal glory that stands for you in heaven, but you will probably choose um, to be satisfied by the means of sin in this world. Uh, if you do not believe that God will reward the righteous, then why would you pursue righteousness? If you think that your best life now comes in this world, then you certainly shouldn't put off the sinful desires that the world says are so satisfying. And so if you are one who is wrestling, and, and we all are, and so I don't mean to say this, in, 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 that, that you wrestle in a token way, but When we look at our zeal for life and we lack it, that could be a problem of us actually living in a functional denial of the resurrection. But also if we are wrestling with habitual sins, um, that also here too is a functional denial of the resurrection. Because if we believe that God will reward the righteous, if we believe that God will bring blessing to those who are living in obedience to Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel and the inner working of grace in you, then you won't choose to sin. This is what we've been looking at in Proverbs, right? We see the immense promise of God to bless those who pursue obedience to him. And if we deny the resurrection, what we're doing is we're functionally denying the biggest rewards we have in this life. And this is, um, this is something that is, that we need to be careful with because, um, I consider myself to be what's called a Christian hedonist. John Piper kind of um, made popular this phrase in his book that came out desiring God. And and it basically means that our greatest joy in life is following God. And we believe that wholeheartedly. But but one way people misunderstand Christian hedonism is they think that uh, if we follow Jesus, everything in this life will always and only be joyful in the sense that this world counts it as joyful. And Christian hedonism admits, as Proverbs do, that in following Jesus, even when we are crushed and afflicted and wounded, we take great joy in sharing in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Um, but sometimes what happens is if we, we uh, misunderstand hedonism, we think that everything in this life will be joyful by world, worldly standards, and we actually deny that a lot of that joy finds its head. A lot of the shadows we take comfort in find its form in this new heavens and new earth, in this resurrection from the dead. And so we need to be careful to not strip away our hope for obedience and our joy, even when things are not joyful, by removing the promise of that that comes in this resurrection from the dead. And then lastly, he gives this triumphal endurance of Jesus, the song of the redeemed in verses 52 through 58, where he says this, um, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what is our enduring defense against sin? The promise that we will conquer death finally and ultimately. To die is to sin. We were not made to die. We're made to live. And Christ brings us final and ultimate victory, even over the power of sin and death. Um, The sting of death is sin. And so Jesus brings us victory over that and that allows us to live with motivation and with a pursuit of holiness in every area of our life. And this is where, um, if you go back to first Corinthians six, that's where we see, remember he says, everything is beneficial, but not everything is permissible. I will not be mastered by anything. Um, he says, you know, the food is made for the stomach and stomach for the food, uh, but you are made for God. And so when we zoom out here for one second, what does this mean about our bodies? How do we understand our bodies? Well, this means this, um, we don't live for the body, but just like our souls, our body um, is going to be redeemed finally and ultimately by the gospel. The hope for our soul is that right now we have been brought spiritually um, into the newness that Christ gives us. And we know that one day our body too has that hope our body will be fully and finally redeemed. And so we don't live for our body, but our body joins us in living for God and yearning for God. And that dictates the kind of risky places we put our body in. It dictates the kind of actions we do. It it dictates the righteousness we pursue um, because we no longer live for the gratification of our body, but we use our body to the ends to pursuing God's glory, knowing that our body itself will soon share in the wonderful redemption of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So that's looking in. And lastly, uh, looking out, this is kind of a big pivot at the end, but something that stood out to me. So in chapter 16, he's kind of giving his um, concluding instructions to the church. And look at what he says in verses 15 and following. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were were the first converts in Achaia, and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirits as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. And so what I love is at the end of this letter, um, Paul gives a head nod to these three guys, uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus, uh, because they have refreshed his spirits. And the church in Corinth as well. So probably brothers who came from there and have gone back and forth and are, are serving the two. And then he says, give recognition to such people. And so there's two things I want us to do when it comes to looking out with this: is one, are we those who refresh the spirits of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Man, here we have Paul and this church that are are kind of um, there's this firmness that Paul is writing to. Uh, there's this context which is difficult, and yet there are these believers who come and are refreshing, um, who are preaching the gospel, who are who are embodying the love we ought to have towards one another in Jesus Christ. And it refreshes. And I want to be that kind of person. I want to be the kind of person who is refreshing to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and lastly, we ought to also give recognition to those who refresh us. And I think of, um, there are a lot of things in pastoral ministry where when people talk to you, they're not refreshing. Um, it's just the nature of the beast. Uh, it's it's not unique uh, to it. It's not a woe is me thing. But one thing I've become more aware of is uh, I am so grateful to our church to have people who are refreshing. Um, and I want to give recognition to those people. Uh, I want to affirm it when they do that. It could be through Um, you know, conversations where they're encouraging you in your faith. It it could be just through seeing their lifestyle and being refreshed by that. But we ought to recognize those people to give thanks to God and to thank God for them to their face, to say, thank you so much for what it is you're doing, because that is how you can now, who has received refreshment, you can refresh them by acknowledging not how awesome they are, but how gracious God is in their life. And actually by affirming them, you are showing them, look at what God's doing in your life. You are reminding them of the power of the gospel that they are experiencing. You're reminding them of that thing that Paul opened with the gospel, which they received, on which they stand, and in which they are being saved. Look at what Jesus is doing in you and look at how it has refreshed me. Praise be to God for the power of the gospel. And so maybe today, um, think through what does it look like for you to be a refreshing presence to your brothers and sisters who are in your church, in your community group. I think this is really important right now for us speaking to my own church um, because even where we meet on Sundays, it's just temporary. There's really no central place for us to be outside of that small hour and a half service together. And so the church needs people who are willing to go and to refresh others. Our church is scattered by COVID. It's scattered by our temporary location, but we do not need to be scattered um, when it We do not need to be isolated from refreshing each other. We we have the modern means of Zoom and Google and, and Facebook and texts and calls. What does it look like to move towards those who are around you and refresh them? We give membership booklets to all of our members. That is a great way to start this refreshing process. And when you receive that, be sure to praise God for what he's doing in your life through that person in a way that person understands the grace that they are exhibiting, that they are, that you are pointing them to not just see, look at this unique personality quirk you have, but you're saying, look at what God is doing in you. Look at how wonderful God's grace is to you. And in so doing that, um, we in all of our mess, though, hopefully not like the Corinthian church can actually be encouraged to godliness and worship and brotherly affection so let me pray for us in closing and uh, we can get on with our day. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the hope we have in the resurrection from the dead. I pray that we would not um, affirm that truth and hold it at distance, but actually that we would, we would think about it with every um, desire of our life like, to, to actually ask ourselves, how does knowing I will have a bodily resurrection and eternal hope in Jesus, how does this change the way I view A or B? How does it change the way I view my workouts or my diets? How does it change the way I view my generosity? How does it change the way I view um, giving to missions or going to missions or encouraging those around us? And Lord, I pray that because we understand that we will lose nothing in the gospel, that we can be bold to refresh and encourage those who are around us. We pray all of this for the health and growth of your church and the glory of your name. Amen. Thanks guys. Have a good Monday. We will see you later. Don't forget to join us on Wednesday where you could participate in our live uh, Bible study as well.